Hi, everybody. I'm Josh Constein, your host of Press Club. Today on Press Club, we're discussing the future of self-driving cars with the biggest names in the industry. Founders from Cruise, Aurora, Voyage, Zooks, former employees from Uber, and the top editor of transportation at TechCrunch. So please welcome our incredible guests. And I want to kick things off by sending it to you, Kyle, the co-founder of Cruise Automation. Maybe you could just tell us a little bit about how is the self-driving car explosion going to change our perception of cities and our place as a, a to hang out with friends, you know, with self-driving cars, we're not going to have the same third space that teens in the fifties grew up with, uh, getting their hand-me-down cars from their parents and finally getting to escape the house. You know, if you have to rent that car uh, or it comes with a subscription driver, like, uh, with, you know, as Uber does now, it really changes this. So Kyle, maybe you could just start us off. Tell us a little bit about how you think big picture about how self-driving cars are going to affect our society. Hey Josh, uh, thanks for the question. Thanks for having me. Uh, this should be fun today. Well, um, cities, I think, you know, in the in the short term, I'd say the early commercialization of self-driving cars um, will not change that much um, because we're going to enter this hybrid phase where there's a lot of human drivers on the road and a lot of self-driving cars on the road. And since we still have human drivers on the road, the way cities look and shape and the way they're designed and the use of lanes and everything, I don't think will change very much. But when you look beyond that, um, after the first few years of, of uh, commercialization of self-driving cars in major cities, um, I think cities will t- start to take a look at uh, how we design them and maybe reclaim some parking areas and other things for, for parklets and public use and perhaps even get to the point where certain regions of cities are for exclusive use of self-driving cars, which enables all sorts of safety benefits and throughput uh, and efficiency, You know, getting people to their places faster. But in terms of the way people spend their time, that's one of the things I'm most excited about with self-driving cars um, is to get people back that time. In uh, California, 10% of drivers commute more than two hours a day. And that's, uh, that's time that you don't get back. And it's usually pretty stressful. And that stress carries over to the workplace or uh, you know, goes home with you at night. And so the notion of giving that people time back, I think, will not only be just great for our well-being, uh, you know, especially in cities, but could also give birth to a new form of socialization. You know, the, the ride itself in cars today where you're all facing forward and there's someone else in the car that you don't know, uh, unless you're driving yourself or other people, uh, it's still not a very social experience. And I think with a lot of the new cars we're seeing, like the Cruise Origin, and I think the cars that, uh, that Zooks and perhaps others are making, uh, it's going to be a really interesting experience, much more like a living room on wheels. And that's going to be really fun. Yeah, it's really exciting, the idea of us actually getting some of that time back and maybe getting to look over at our passengers that are sitting next to us or at least out the window rather than having to focus on the road. Jesse, I'd love to throw it to you. Maybe you could give us your high level picture of what you think is going to change about society once we have these self-driving cars in place. Hey, thanks. And great to be here. Um, yeah, I mean, I agree with a lot of what, what Kyle said. And, and thanks for the shout out, Kyle. I mean, we, we both have a pretty similar vision for how, you know, vehicles that are built for riders uh, and not drivers can really change the, the transportation game and, and reshape parts of society. Today, you kind of have to choose between owning your own car, which is kind of expensive and a terrible use of resources because you know people only use their cars on average 4% of the time, which means that 96% of the time, they're literally just sitting around taking up space and depreciating. So that's not particularly awesome. Or you can use Uber and Lyft, which is kind of nice because then that, that car asset gets utilized a little bit more uh, although it's generally not built to, do, to to last that long. But then you have to pay somebody else to drive you around. And that's pretty extravagant and pretty expensive, especially if that's going to be your primary means of transportation. And so what, what robo-taxis have the promise to do is make transportation a lot more accessible uh, and affordable and safer and cleaner, and just making the experience of getting around cities a lot more 
enjoyable. And I think you will see a lot of changes in the way cities are built over time. You know, that doesn't mean that we're asking cities to change themselves overnight because then we'll be waiting a long time. But I do think, you know, if you look years or decades in the future, as cars, you know, that people drive kind of slowly, slowly go away over time and, and robo taxis come in, you'll see, you know, more sidewalks and you'll see, uh, you know, fewer parking lots and you'll see more room for parks and, and other nice stuff. Uh, you'll see people who didn't used to have access to safe and affordable transportation able to get to work. Uh, it's just going to be a really wonderful thing for society over the next couple of decades. And it's not going to happen overnight. Um, but we're all working really hard to make sure it does happen in the not super distant future. Can I, can I ask a question, Josh? Of course. What do you think the timeline is for autonomous air travel? My totally naive view is that in some ways it seems a lot easier than making it work on the ground because you have a Z-axis and everything is fully autonomous. And and my understanding is that with VTOL, like you can it kind of works now. It's you know, and and it's kind of cost effective and it can be really fast. Is it the type of thing where that could potentially leapfrog the ground stuff, or is that quite a ways off and the safety concerns are, are too great? Maybe Raquel, you could take this one because I know that at, back at Uber, they were looking at self driving plane or uh, aerial vehicles as well. Yeah, um, great question. So I guess it is like different types of uh, challenges when you go to uh, aerial vehicles, right? One of them being, you know, batteries and uh, how can you make batteries so that you can recharge immediately and uh, plus the safety concerns, uh, you know, potentially. So um, I believe that uh, the ground is going to be before uh, aerial vehicles, uh, but time time will see. But one of the things that I think is important to note is that this is not going to be a transformation that's going to be on a single day, right? We're going to see, you know, this technology uh, being deployed little by little, right? And, uh, you know, and it's going to take a, a while to to really see, you know, big changes, uh, you know, out there. Great. So I want to get back to the question at hand, which was really just thinking big picture about societal impacts. Uh, maybe we kick it to you, Sterling, one of the co-founders of Aurora. Why? What do you think is going to happen uh, when these self-driving cars roll out? What are they going to be the, the effects on our real daily lives beyond the obvious stuff of like, we don't have to drive anymore? Yeah, I think Kyle and Jesse, well, first, hi, uh, Josh, nice to meet you. And Raquel, Jesse, Kyle, Kiss, and Oliver, great to see, great to talk to you guys. Uh, in, in terms of the impacts on our lives from ride hailing, I think both Kyle and Jesse uh, hit that pretty well. Um, the, the one market maybe that we haven't uh, talked too much about, well, two markets, uh, one is in delivery uh, and the other is in trucking. Um, in trucking logistics space, uh, just to kind of add to what's been said, uh, this is a uh, huge market today, seven, eight hundred billion dollars in the United States alone. Uh, the safety, the speed, and the efficiency of movement of goods is a big deal. All right, um, all of us. When, to the question of how are we going to kind of experience this impact on our on our daily lives, uh, most of us at this point will have become somewhat prolific users of e-commerce, maybe accelerated by the last year uh, of events. Uh, uh, through that, uh, you may have seen uh, obviously the, the the continued push by logistics companies, uh, shippers. Uh, and producers of goods to increase kind of the network presence and its proximity to people so that uh, at lower costs and more rapidly they can get goods to them. Uh, the introduction of self-driving in the trucking logistics space allows self-driving trucks to uh, move much more quickly, right? Uh, travel 24 hours a day instead of the eight uh, hours that, that, uh, that uh, or the hours of service limitations that currently exist, right? So today, getting a uh, package from Los Angeles to Dallas 
take a human driver about three days, right? Moving in effectively 11 hour increments, uh, move to a self-driving truck and it can do that trip in 24 hours. And so the, the result is a fairly revolutionary change uh, to the way that our logistics networks work um, and, and solves a lot of the challenges that industry is dealing with today. So I think the impact on our lives is, is, is really going to be safer, more efficient, uh, quicker goods movement uh, as well. Yeah, I mean, that sounds great if anybody's getting a little bit tired of how high those delivery fees are on, on all of those food delivery apps. Uh, Oliver, would love to hear your opinion. You know, philosophically, how do you think this is going to change society? Yes. Uh, firstly, thank you for having me here. It's going to be fun. So I think it's been broadly covered the societal effects of self-driving across all these different mediums. One of the things I think about, and similar to what Kyle said, is the time that's returned to you. We spend, I can't even quantify it, many, many, many hours, hundreds of hours looking forward in our cars. And if you have kids, that means you're looking forward away from them. You're not spending time with them. You're supposed to be focused on the road. If they talk to you, you're distracted. And it's just a hopeful feeling that we all get to spend more time with our kids, with our families, because we won't be looking forward. We'll be looking at each other and uh, we'll, be, we'll be talking with each other and just enjoying time. And uh, that's what really excites me about this technology. It's, uh, it's a potential enabler of, uh, of getting to know each other's families just that little bit more than uh, you might otherwise uh, be able to when you're driving a three-ton vehicle. Raquel, I want to kick this back to you because, you know, you spent such an incredible amount of time thinking about not only how this has affected the technology, but also what the, you know, the societal repercussions would be uh, when you were formerly the chief scientist of Uber ATG. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about what you're foreseeing for societal uh, second order effects. Yeah, sure. And, uh, you know, pleasure to be here today. Um, so, you know, uh, I guess my colleagues have had touched in many of the points that I wanted to make. But, so I will make one more, which is you know, as European, um, I'm used to some amazing public transportation, right, which is very rare in North America. And one of the, the uh, things that I'm really excited about is uh, really providing, you know, this technology is going to provide mobility for um, everyone, regardless of where you live. And in particular, you know, the effect that it's going to have into, you know, bringing equal opportunities to many people, which I think is, you know, something that we should definitely take, uh, take into account. Um, so definitely very excited about, you know, how this is going to change, you know, the landscape of uh, you know, the economic means of many people. Amazing. And Kirsten, you're the editor uh, at, of transportation at TechCrunch. You've interviewed many of the people on stage already and are, are fully immersed in this business. What are some of the other second order effects that you're excited about or maybe scared of? Great to be here. Thanks for having me. And yes, I know I know all of these folks um, pretty well. Um, and I guess my I want to back up a little bit and just sort of think about how you know philosophically AVs are a great idea, just like philosophically ride ride sharing was great. And there are some implications that we're now dealing with. So for me, someone covering it. I try not to get too wrapped up into the excitement of what it could be and just look at like, what are we missing here that AVs may create? Not just necessarily problems, but changing the way we work, changing the way we get from point A to point B, but changing our behaviors in general, and then the unintended effects um, that might happen. Um, So I tend to kind of be, I guess, a little bit more pessimistic, I guess, about the idea of this like utopian society where all parking lots disappear and they turn into parks. And I'm much more interested in like 
what are the hard technical challenges that are left to be done? And how are the group of people that we have in this room today, basically the people who are, uh, there are a few other companies um, that are certainly should, should be on here as well, but who are going to be, are, are they going to be able to crack this? So that's kind of how I like to think about things and, and not get too wrapped up totally into like how our society might change, but like, what are they going to do and can they crack this technically? Well, I think that that's exciting. And we're definitely going to get a little bit deeper into some of the technological issues a little bit later in the show. But yeah, just to remind everyone here on Press Club, Thursdays at 6 p.m. Pacific, we bring together big names in technology to discuss the big issues. And I think self-driving is one of the biggest, especially given just how much money, not only big startups, big tech giants, but also the giant auto manufacturers are all pouring into this industry right now. It's very exciting. Uh, and with that, you know, there's been a lot of change in the industry lately, a lot of consolidation. Suddenly, everybody seems to be acquiring everyone. Uh, Kyle, you acquired Oliver's company Voyage. Um, you know, I, I know that uh, the Zooks acquired, uh, or sorry, Zooks was acquired by Amazon, your company, Jesse. And there's a lot of this happening right now. And, and Uber ended up selling its ATG business to Aurora, Sterling's business. So a ton of this sudden, sudden shakeup in the business. I would love to just hear, why is that happening now? And what does that mean for the, the timeline that we're foreseeing for self-driving cars? Maybe you could start us off, uh, Jesse, since you've been uh, over at Amazon now for a year, I guess. For sure. Well, I think, you know, one of the things that everybody knew, but maybe we didn't quite know the extent of it is not only is this problem really hard, it's also very expensive, right? I mean, you need a lot of data. You need a lot of engineers. Uh, engineers aren't cheap, especially with the market the way it is right now. And you need time. There aren't, there aren't a lot of shortcuts to building a you know, truly safe self-driving vehicle. And not just thinking that it's safe, but quantifying that it's safe. Right? That's one of the that's one of the hard problems we're all working on. It's not just about improving our metrics or you know, well, this he gave this awesome demo and check out this sweet video. I mean, those are great too. But you know, ultimately, it's building a, a quantifiable safety argument that this thing is meaningfully safer than humans, and that's just a hard and expensive thing to do. And in 2014, I, I knew the problem was really hard, but I, I still thought that maybe. Maybe, you know, companies would be able to figure out some type of autonomy in a box and maybe as, you know, sensors got better and computers got faster and algorithms got better, maybe it would become somewhat commoditized, you know, in the next decade. That's not happening, at least in my view. I mean, I, 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 don't, I don't see this sort of magic autonomy in the box really being a thing anytime in the next, you know, five years, maybe in 10 years, maybe in 20 years. Um, what that means is that, you know, you really do have to do the rigorous and hard work to, to do, you know, integrated hardware and software, you know, the, the vehicle platform, the computers, the sensors, the AI, you know, the infrastructure, the network, how do you put it all together? That's just a really hard and expensive thing to do. And so what you're seeing is that you just need a lot of capital to do that. Now, in our case, we were really fortunate to get connected with Amazon and for them to see the potential value over the next, you know, 10, 15, 20 years that that can create for society and, and for their short, their shareholders. Um, there aren't a lot of companies that you know could afford the many, 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 many billions of dollars it's going to take us to truly build and scale this technology. Um, you know, Waymo has been able to do that with Alphabet and some external capital. Cruise has been able to do that with you know a variety of great investors and partners. Um, but it's just a, it's just a, you know there, there's not going to be a ton of companies that are able to secure multiple billions of dollars of capital before they have meaningful revenue. And so I think that to some extent this is all inevitable. And I'm not even sure that it's happening more now than it's been happening over the last several years. I mean, you've seen you've seen cons consolidation kind of, you know, in spurts over the last several years. And um, I'm, I'm frankly not terribly surprised by it. 
If you guys want to uh, chime in on this chat, we'd love to have your questions as well. You can go to constein.club. The URL is up in the title of the room. And there you can submit questions and chat with fellow listeners about what you think about the future of self-driving cars. Uh, but I want to ask, what happens next, though? Like, Are there other companies that you guys expect to be acquired? Uh, are there major holes in sort of the existing networks that some of these big companies and conglomerations have, have put together? You know, what is missing from the, from what's going on right now? Like, Is, is it uh, more in the truck? space? Is it more in, you know, uh, in the taxi space or is it in the you know, manufactured cars uh, that are designed for ownership? We'd love to hear like, what you think is going to happen next in the con- consolidation world. Uh, maybe Oliver or Sterling, I know that you guys have either gone through it or been, been the acquirer or been the acquiree. For sure. I'd love to add something here. So I, I feel that, yes, consolidation has happened. One of the interesting side effects I've seen is not necessarily, I can't predict who's going to come next. Uh, I'm sure someone will sometime soon. Uh, it will just happen. And like Jesse said, I think it's happened uh, over, over the course of many years. What I think is quite sad is that I'm not sure you'll see too many seed stage self-driving companies uh, anymore, right? That there was this 20, I don't know, 2016, 2017 sort of phase where there was a, an explosion of folks working on self-driving. And that was really exciting. And then uh, since then, you've seen this steady, you know, uh, line of just depressive news articles about all these projects. And I think the consequence of all that and also the capital required has just meant that not many, you know, talented founders are taking on this problem, which I feel I, 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 you know, would bet is going to have long-term ramifications for any industry. You don't just want the folks that have been there and raised, you know, money to, uh, to just have it to themselves. There's got to be uh, competition from, from scrappy founders as well. What do you think, Sterling? Yeah, I think Jesse covered quite a lot of it, uh, to be frank. The one, one thing that I put a bit of a finer point on uh, that he briefly touched on, but, but not in quite the depth that I think may be warranted here, is that of the value of a deeply integrated system. Uh, for years, there were a number of many of the companies, uh, some of which, you know, Oliver, I think may be referencing, started with the intention of effectively selling shovels to miners, right? I'll build a simulation system and you all can use it. I'll build a mapping system, you all, you all can use it. The, uh, the complexity of the self-driving task is one that uh, simply is best suited to a deeply integrated system where you can make trades in complexity across different elements of the system. Uh, you can, for instance, define your map schema uh, to match uh, exactly what your motion planning system is expecting to, to, to know about the world or know about the, the environment in which you're operating. You can do the same with your simulation system, your, your infrastructure. There is so much of this that is so highly optimized and, and complexity that trades across these modules that in a, a deeply integrated system simply is, is the one that will allow you to get it across the line uh, in any time in the kind of near future. And the result of that tends to be a, a, a growth in just the number of experts that are required. And as Jesse flags, uh, those are that's not not a cheap endeavor. Uh, and so I think there's there's value in uh, I think there's 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 real motivation for that consolidation, uh, both from the standpoint of kind of the the, the requirements of the technology uh, creation as well as uh, just the the exigencies of the commercial landscape. Uh, I think one other thing that you're seeing. Uh, here in terms of market dynamic may, may be worth calling out is the industry has gone through a few different phases as it relates to kind of ambitions of various players, right? When you look at most of the self-driving problems, really you're, you're looking at three kind of major functional expertise that they need to come to bear, right? One 
being the network, right? whether it's a logistics network or a ride-hailing network, uh, one being the, the self-driving technology and one being the vehicle. Uh, historically, we've seen quite a lot of shuffle, to be frank, in those who have historically created vehicles, expecting to be the ones who also create the self-driving system, sometimes even wanting to create the network. Those who created the network wanting to also create the self-driving system. Uh, and I think what you're seeing in recent years has been a, uh, a gradual acknowledgement that experts in one space are unlikely to be experts in the others. Uh, and, and as a result, you're seeing some things like uh, you know the transaction that we made with Uber. Uh, recently, you're seeing OEMs make partnerships like what they did with Cruz uh, years ago instead of kind of attempting to build uh, the whole system uh, themselves. And, and so I think, I think you'll continue to see this realization across the industry of, of look, we all kind of need to play our respective positions uh, because our, our respective expertise is different. Yeah, I think that makes perfect sense. Though, if if you if, you, if you're great at making cars, it doesn't mean you're necessarily great at building the, the the systems to detect people in front of those cars. And just because you built that, doesn't mean you can build the giant logistics network, the huge network of of cars or, or the ride hailing uh, logistics necessary to put all those pieces together. And that brings me to the next question that I'm really excited about, which is to figure out. I want to hear each of you go down the line and argue: What are we going to see? Is it going to be a majority ownership model, or are we going to be more, more towards a, a subscription model of ride hailing versus actually owning a self-driving car yourself. Uh, maybe we could start with Kyle. What do you think is going to be the dominant form? Well, look, Josh, that's an interesting question. Uh, if, could I redirect for a second? I have a really, uh, I just want to of course. take a step back here. I just want to remind everyone that working on self-driving is, is kind of insane. I think it's one of the most like absurd things that humanity has ever attempted. You know, it's the first time humanity has tried to make something that's, you know, a robotic system that's real time, as in operating in the blink of an eye, safety critical, as in it has to make life or life or death decisions and smarter than a human. And if you take a step back and squint at what we're building, you know, over the, you know, over a longer time scale, um, I would tell you that it sounds like what we're doing is self-driving, but really what we're building is teleportation. And I, I guarantee you, you know, certainly within my lifetime, you're going to be able to fall asleep in one place wake up in another with a series of self-driving, you know, cars and perhaps uh, VTOL aircraft or other things taking you there. So we're building teleportation, just masked as self-driving. There's also the life extension piece. There's a lot of people working on trying to like make human bodies last longer. But uh, if you think about all the time, as Oliver was touching on, that we spend wasting time, the valuable time we have, um, I think self-driving cars are going to be the most profound impact um, that we're going to see perhaps in decades, on basically the ability to extend human life or usable human life. And then lastly, I remind everyone that basically we're all complacent as a society that self, like cars today are the number one cause of death for teenagers in the U.S. And somehow that seems to be like overlooked all the time. And so the other thing we're building, not just teleportation, but life extension, is also a vaccine for um, you know, the death of children. So like, you know, taking a step back, if you're not working on this, if you're not like somehow involved in this, I just can't imagine, you know, anyone with, with talents or skills that could be working on this that isn't, not only is that something you're going to regret down the road, but like, you know, we really need help. This is, this is, the, this is like, there's nothing I think anyone can be doing on the planet that's uh, nearly as impactful as this, you know, over a long time scale, uh, except maybe if you're working on a cure for cancer or something like that. But this is a really big deal. And I think it's easy to go in the weeds on like, you know, what's the timeline? What's the ownership model? All that kind of stuff. That stuff doesn't interest me, quite frankly. Uh, this is just too important to really uh, to lose sight of the big picture. Hey, Josh, I was wondering if I could ask a question. This is Kirsten. Yeah, of course. Um, so Kyle or anyone, but 
I do think like business model matters if you want to scale it, right? But stepping back and kind of talking about or addressing what you said, if this is so important, like what is the biggest risk to this industry? What could derail it? Could it be, for example, Tesla's pursuit of qualifying what is an ADAS system as, you know, full automation? Is it a lack of funding? Is it a potential, you know, um, death that could occur that society just can't handle? And what do you see as like the existential risk um, to deploying autonomous vehicles at scale? I guess if that's coming back to me, I'd say none. The gravitational pull for the things that I outlined, the importance of those problems, really transcends you know, governments, uh, funding challenges, uh, because these happen to be aligned with, you know, with businesses that are generating revenue. So I think even if it was your sole goal in life to stop self-driving cars from happen, happening, uh, you will fail. And probably on, on really any timeline, whether the short term or the next five years, even 10 years, uh, because the company is working on this, the people are so motivated that, uh, you know, if you put up one block somewhere, uh, they're going to go right around it and find another way. Um, whether that's, you know, not necessarily bypassing regulations, but finding markets where regulation is, is more appropriate uh, or more welcoming, welcoming um, or finding different investors with interested in different business models that power this. But I honestly think the answer is nothing will stop this. Like it's it's humanly impossible in, unless, you know, the earth disappears. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with Kyle on this. Uh, one, one thing that I'll add <clears throat> is is it's really on us to make it happen, right? We, we oftentimes refer to this as a bit of a field of dreams technology. In the sense that if if you build it, they'll come, right? This is this is a tide that will the societal benefits for which are so compelling that it'll be really difficult uh, for to to hold it back on on the account of of any of these regulatory, commercial, or kind of other concerns. At the end of the day, uh, uh, the, the the lives saved, uh, the the time returned, the costs saved um, are just so compelling that I, I think at the end of the day, as as Kyle says, this. This technology, once we solve it, uh, will will ultimately become ubiquitous. Anybody else have a sort of philosophical take on that, Raquel? Maybe. Sure. I, oh, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, Raquel. Then I'll. Yeah, Jesse, if you, you want to go first, that, that's fine with me. Uh, no, please, please go ahead, and then I'll I'll go next. Cool. So, um, yeah, I was gonna say that you know I agree that you know this is bound to happen, right? Because there is so much good uh, that is gonna come out of it. I think it's important also to say that we need to get there in a responsible manner, right? And if we don't, this is not necessarily going to kill this happening, but it's more that, uh, you know, it will take us much longer to get there. So there will be delays, you know, for a technology that is, uh, you know, it's going to provide so many things. Cool. Yeah. I mean, look, I I agree essentially with everything you all said, but I I also want to be a little bit careful that we're not too just like, oh my God, we're so awesome. And every, like, this is the best thing anybody could ever work. I mean, I, I actually, I kind of, obviously, I mean, this is what I'm spending my life doing. So like, I'm 200% all about this. Um, and I, I agree with, I mean, Kyle, I agree with you. I don't, I don't think there's anything that's going to derail this. Um, I still think it's worth reflecting at least, you know, momentarily on some of the things that could, could slow the industry down, not because they're going to stop the industry in its tracks, but you know, as, as the leaders in the industry, it's also our responsibility to, you know, educate the public and also, you know, hopefully maybe give some slightly thoughtful warnings to some other companies in the space to just, you know, be be responsible. I think I think this is really important. I mean, this this is an industry that has had a lot of hype uh, and at times too much. 
Uh, and sometimes that can cause, you know, the opposite, which is a trough of dis disillusionment. I think we're hopefully a little bit past some of the extreme hype and some of the extreme disillusionment, which is good for the industry. But we also need to be really responsible along the way. And I know everybody in this call agrees with that. I, I know I'm not saying anything controversial, but, you know, there, there, there are definitely times where companies haven't been as responsible as they should have been. And that can set the industry back. Now, I don't think it's going to stop the industry. I agree. I mean, Kyle, you're absolutely right. No, no, you know, no single incident or no single stupid thing that a company does is going to prevent this technology from having the wonderful benefits it will have on society eventually. But because 40,000 Americans are dying every year in car crashes, which is about 100 a day, every day we can you know, get this technology to the market sooner saves a lot of lives. So I think we can actually do some reflecting on what, you know, what can we do as an industry to minimize some of the stupid things that might otherwise happen. And sure, they wouldn't derail the whole industry forever, but you know, every, every, every accident we can avoid, every, every stupid thing we can avoid is going to make this technology happen sooner. And that's why I know that everybody on this call you know, is totally on the same page in terms of doing things properly and you know, not removing the driver before they're really you know, ready to make a quantitative safety argument. That's great. I don't know if that's necessarily true for you know, all the companies historically or even some of the companies out there that are you know, maybe confusing what a driver assistance system is with what full self-driving really means. And so again, you know, I think we can all try to, although we can't be responsible for other people's decisions and other companies' you know, behavior, we can at least encourage people to be responsible, uh, to use the right terms, and to not deploy technology before it's ready. Because, you know, mistakes will set the industry back, not permanently, but temporarily, and even temporary setbacks are a real loss for, for human life. Yeah, to that end, if you guys would like to weigh in on this, would love to hear your thoughts. We have a poll running on Constein.club. It's uh, in the URL. The URL is up there at the top of the, the title. And you can go and give your uh, perception of what you think could derail this industry or if nothing is going to stop the, the self-driving car industry. You know, Because the one thing that I always worried was that, like, yeah, if there were some really high-profile deaths, especially a few in succession, it could scare regulators into really putting the kibosh on this. And so maybe uh, we'd love to hear... Uh, thoughts on you know what happened recently with the tragic deaths in Tesla uh, in one of the Teslas uh, which was running its autopilot uh, what is what was your perception when you heard that I'm sure we all know that this is a tragedy but what did you think the impact of this was going to be and you know as you were mentioning Jesse like we have to do this safely we need to be able to roll these technologies out only when once they're really road ready do you feel that Tesla is responsibly providing these early levels of autonomy or do you think it's not really safe for them to be providing this especially if users who might misunderstand it are misusing it and leading to these kind of tragedies? I think it's in between. I think it's also, you know, we all have to be careful not to jump to conclusions. We don't actually know what happened in that crash. We have the police saying that there was no driver. We have Tesla saying that autopilot wasn't even engaged and there was a driver. I don't know. I wasn't there. Hopefully we'll find out someday. Certainly if there was no driver, then the, the people operating the vehicle were beyond irresponsible and stupid. And you can't completely blame that on Tesla by any means. At the same time, the idea of deploying so-called full self-driving to semi-unsuspecting customers who are very obviously going to start trusting it more than they should when it's pretty good but not good enough to actually not pay attention with, uh, that, that is going to be dangerous. And I, I do worry about that. You know, Again, it's not going to derail the whole industry forever. But I, I do think that's something they're going to be, you know, need to be very careful about. There, there's a reason why, you know, Cruise, Zooks, Aurora, there, there's a reason why we all have trained safety drivers. 
and we, you know, we have rigorous training courses and, and we, we pay these wonderful folks to pay attention and to take notes, you know, with the software operator in the, in the passenger seat. And, and it's not just, you know, random people beta testing this stuff. So, you know, uh, I, do, I do think that, that companies have a responsibility to be careful. Uh, but I also think we need to be careful that we don't rush to, to judgments when there's, you know, a fatality and we don't really have all the facts. Yeah, no, as you mentioned, you know, every day that we don't have self-driving cars on the road, there are other deaths that are being caused by that just by the traditional auto accidents. So we might get too caught up in, you know, a few anecdotal you know, tragedies, but and lose sight of just the constant tragedy, which is how dangerous normal cars are all the time. But yeah, we'd love to hear uh, maybe Sterling, Oliver, do you think that Tesla is responsibly rolling out uh, self-driving abilities right now? Or do you think that it needs to dial things? back let me just take uh the a bit of a broader perspective here josh i have a little bit of background obviously in, in what's going on over there first tremendous respect for tesla what they've done as a company in pushing forward the adoption of electric vehicles is is nothing short of phenomenal uh in the the people that they brought in uh and enlisted in that mission uh or some of the most exceptional people i've ever worked with so i, I should i should lead with that what i should also say is the problem that jesse Kyle, Oliver, Raquel, and I are and, and have been solving for some time is a different one from the one that Tesla is solving. And, and we, should, we should be clear about that. This is, this is one of the things that I, I think about kind of the appropriate uh, conversation to be had in public and regulatory circles is not that of, hey, how are we similar? But instead, hey, how is the problem that we're solving simply a different one? Uh, Tesla has to sell cars. To sell cars, uh, Tesla has to use uh, hardware that it doesn't break the bank of a customer that buys them. To sell said hardware, they've got to thin it down, and they have to provide uh, immediate value to the customer uh, on that, which, which you know, the technical capability exists today only to provide incremental driver assistance features and, and very little more. Now, what's happened in the public space, and, and you know, say what you will about branding, marketing, names that are naming that gets used, is that people have conflated what Tesla is doing with what Aurora, Zooks, Cruise, Voyage, others have been doing. Uh, it's not. The, the vehicles that we're producing, and you asked a question earlier, Josh, that we never actually got into because, quite frankly, you're not going to find controversy on this, on this call, uh, was that of uh, personal versus fleet ownership. But at the end of the day, self-driving vehicles, to come to market quickly with a safe product, need to have uh, the, the kind of sensors and computers that today are fairly expensive. Uh, that won't work in a personally driven car, just the economics of it won't. Uh, but amortize uh, against the much higher utilization of a shared fleet vehicle, they do. Uh, and that's, that's why fundamentally each of us doesn't lose sleep about including a sensor or a compute element uh, that's going to be more expensive uh, than what we would be willing to put on a car if we had to sell it to an end customer. We are also willing to, as Jesse says, hire safety drivers. We're willing to take the time we need to to get this right and then introduce it incrementally, but not incrementally in the form of features and requiring the riders in the car to take over when they need to, but instead incrementally in the form of the specific targeted use cases, applications, and operational domains for which it's been developed and validated. So that's, that's the key thing that I would highlight here um, for, for your listeners is uh, what Tesla is doing is not what Aurora, Cruise, Zooks, and others are doing. So my take is that uh, to answer the 
question of is Tesla being responsible uh, and to add some spice to the conversation, perhaps, uh, I'd say they're not being responsible. And the reason I'd say that is because there is a growing number of Tesla customers who believe that a Tesla vehicle is self-driving, meaning you do not need to be in the front seat, meaning you can take a video while in the back seat, you pull pranks, post them on TikTok, things like that. And if that number keeps growing, which it seems like it is, Tesla has an opportunity to say something about that and say, this isn't what this system is intended for. Uh, and if that time continues to elapse before they say something, I, I, I would stand by that I'm, not, I'm convinced that's not the responsible way to roll out this technology. Let me actually build on that, Oliver, for a second. Um, I ran this program when Josh Brown died. Uh, I ran the program when a number of things happened. The company saying something is insufficient. The company can say, so I, I as much as anyone, should have known uh, and did know the limitations of driver assistance systems, and yet found myself increasingly complacent uh, and not ready to take over control of the vehicle when I would have needed to. This is just a natural human phenomenon, irrespective of how many times you've heard a company tell you that, uh, you know, the system is not intended for this thing. And, and to be clear, Oliver, I'm agreeing with you and I'm going a step further, which is to say, uh, A, messaging uh, around this should be clear, but B, what I'm, what I'm highlighting is a fundamental limitation to any system that implicitly builds reliance or complacency in a human user. You cannot outpace human complacency with technological improvement in a space like this. It's simply too complex. The situations that you'll deal with on the road are too many and too difficult uh, to reasonably expect that you'll get better faster than the human will get complacent and, and, and you know, frankly, get worse at being ready to take over control of the vehicle. And so my, my expectation is that until and unless a very clear demarcation in terms of a limitation of how far a driver assistance system is allowed to go is imposed. Uh, humans will, will simply by nature become complacent on. This is part of the reason that Aurora, uh, uh, at least, and, and I think uh, you know, the other companies that are on this call are not deploying systems like these is because we realize that the fundamental challenge uh, of human nature simply makes it untenable to expect, no matter how much messaging you put out there, that a human won't become over-reliant on the system and have problems as a result. Hey, Sterling, I was wondering if I could ask you just a quick follow-up. I'm just wondering... Sure. And we've had conversations about this before. Um, so if you were to look beyond just Tesla, all of this is a big push. Um, and it's a business model push in a lot of ways to um, continue to build more robust um, ADAS systems in vehicles that people can buy today, right? So it's now shifting to level three, quote unquote, uh, levels of automation. Does that worry you? Um, in the way that you just sort of described, that this could actually create a bigger safety problem than is intended just because of that complacency problem? Uh, yes, good question. So first, uh, as to the reference to level three, and maybe my, my uh, talking about this will answer the rest of the question. Level three was a, it, it made uh, SAE's uh, nomenclature look continuous. Uh, Level three doesn't actually exist, as as far as I can tell. And 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 just to be clear, uh, for those that aren't familiar with with, with this reference, uh, the you know Society of Automotive Engineers some years ago 
came out with a, a set of levels uh, by which they intended to describe the capability of a vehicle, all the way from you know it is human driven at level zero uh, to has to to supports the human on one or more axes in levels one and two to level th- to level four and five, which is what Aurora and others are developing, which is will drive itself with no expectation of a fall, you know, of a human fallback under a certain set of conditions in, in level four. Level three is this awkward middle ground uh, that was in, in which it was described uh, that the vehicle will be self-driving uh, and the human need not be paying attention. But should the, should the vehicle or the self-driving system be unable to deal with the situation, the human will be brought back into the control loop to uh, uh, kind of navigate it safely. Now, the problem is bringing a human back into complete situational awareness of the situation and, and, and uh, regaining control takes on the order of 30 seconds. The vehicle, uh, a, a, a self-driving system does not know in general that it's about to fail uh, with, it, with 30 seconds lead time. In fact, most of the situations that you'll encounter in which a self-driving system needs to kick out to a, to a human driver happen in an instant. Uh, and so if, if, you're, if you need to kick to the human driver in an instant, they need to be paying attention, at which point you've fallen into the SAE level two classification. If you can give, if you know 30 seconds in advance, at most speeds, for all intents and purposes, you may as well be a level four system. You may as well have preemptively disengaged the system, given control back to the human, because that's not a kind of in the moment situation you just didn't know how to deal with. That's if you have 30 seconds heads up, uh, you, you know, for all intents and purposes, you know where you can drive and where you can. Yeah, I think that that's a really good point and something that seems strange that like we've come to accept that things like Tesla are saying, oh yeah, like you can just zone out, chill out as long as you're supposedly in the driver's seat and can in theory like regain control of the car, then that's sufficient. But that's just not the way humans work at all. Yeah, to be clear, Tesla, and, and, and I'm not I'm not here to defend Tesla, um, but Tesla has never said you can zone out, right? Um, Tesla's guidelines have been, you know, keep your hands on the wheel and things. The problem that I'm highlighting is despite that guidance, people do zone out. Exactly. It's simply too tempting. It's too easy to do. And as you become comfortable with the vehicle, you will. Yeah. I mean, I think we've probably all had that experience where you're driving and you almost like lose track that you're actually driving and your body just kind of does its normal thing. It's able to sort of process things in the background and you like, you know, you get lost in thought and then all of a sudden you're like, oh my God, I'm driving. Uh, that's not really, I think, a, a feasible if you're not even driving. Like if you if you can let yourself zone out in that way, even if someone tells you not to, you're just naturally going to become familiarized and acclimate to any situation and that will happen long term, which I think is, is a little bit frightening. Uh, Raquel, we'd love to hear your your thoughts on this. And you know, is is there a way to make the uh, a sort of step change slowly towards autonomy work, or do we really need to keep this stuff in the laboratory or with safety drivers and you know all being run by the companies until it's really fully ready for full autonomy? So uh, I agree with um, with Sterling in the sense that you know if your ADAS system gets very very sophisticated, they can do almost everything, but there is you know that one situation that maybe cannot handle and expects you to take over, but that situation only happens, you know, every couple of hours, every couple of days, every couple of years, right? There is, is you know, is not, you know, the expectation that you will take over is just not possible, right? So as a consequence, there is a moment where, you know, these more, uh, you know, sophisticated systems that in theory look safer, they are not safer, they're actually worse, right? And I think that, um, you know, it's important that, you know, we potentially maybe 
block the capabilities, right? So that we make the full change into a fully automatic system, which is, you know, level four, uh, level five that we're talking about here. So I'm, I'm in full agreement that, uh, you know, uh, we need to be, we need to be careful into how we, um, how, what we deploy and also how we message this, because it's very counterintuitive, right? For people to say that, oh, you know, the technology, Technology is better, but potentially it's going to be less safe because you're not going to pay attention. Josh, if I could just add on that a little bit, and this is, this is something that Raquel will have lived for years, so I know she'd, she'd agree with this, but the introduction approach, you asked about, you know, do we have to wait in a laboratory, I think for your words, until, you know, it can do, you know, all these things, then we just deploy it. The answer is no. Uh, and and there's a, a really interesting characteristic um, that allows uh, of, of existing transportation networks it allows the elegant feathering in of a self-driving technology onto those. And so for, 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 for the sake of those listening, for, for whom this is not uh, kind of uh, obvious just because you haven't uh, thought about it before, uh, one thing that's, that makes this very interesting is imagine for a moment a network like Uber uh, that's fulfilling thousands of trips in a given market. Uh, when Uber receives a ride request, it knows the origin and the destination of that ride. And by virtue of that, you know the routes that can be taken to fulfill it. You also know the environmental conditions at time of request. And so because you know this, you can match that against your own capability set. And you can say, look, A, do I have a vehicle close by? B, is the, uh, is the trip or the route that's required to fulfill this ride within the safe operational domain for which I validated the system, which need not be everywhere. It could just be you know, a number of streets in a given market. And C, are the environmental conditions such that I can do this safely? If those th- if the answer to all three questions is yes, you dispatch a self-driving uh, vehicle. If the answer to any of those is no, you dispatch a human-driven vehicle. And by so doing, you can keep the service level of the network very high while feathering in incrementally as you, as you develop additional roadways, as you validate your system for additional uh, environmental conditions, you can increasingly increase your penetration through time uh, in, a, in a very elegant way. And so this is... This is one of the kind of pieces of the introduction that I think are probably not obvious to those not uh, working in this space. That I think are is a is a really compelling uh, kind of aspect of the of the introduction plan, at least that, that Aurora uh, expects to take here. That is super fascinating. The idea of like meshing these two together so that when you're whether it's snowy or rainy or you're going somewhere where the you know the AV isn't as well trained, you could send a human driver. But if it's doing the same tra- track, it's done over and over again in relatively perfect conditions. You can make a risk a risk assessment that says this is actually not that dangerous. Like we know how to do this. Um, but when it comes to that's that works great for those networks of cars. But for you know self driving ownership and, and as in with with Tesla, Sterling, you mentioned like how could we approach that does does the government need to make regulations to say like hey this just isn't, shouldn't be allowed until it's fully autonomous or should you know tesla actually step up and self-police and say hey we need to rewind and, and, and move backwards a little bit so we can make sure this is safe because my my fear is that we're going to have a situation that is a little bit similar to what we've seen with uh with the johnson and johnson vaccine where when because the u.s paused uh the rollout of the jj j vaccine due to those blood clotting issues which were you know very very low frequency, especially compared to things like smoking or birth control, which also can cause blood clots in much more uh, in higher probabilities. That we suddenly saw vaccination rates take a massive dip, 
And that's a really big tragedy for the country as we're trying to get to herd immunity, as we're trying to get you know just as many people to be safe and lower those death counts as we can. You know that momentary problem really caused a huge issue. And you know to me, I would be worried that if we don't have you know these kind of regulations or we don't figure out how to take a step back to rewind a little bit, we could end up with some deaths that lead to regulation that push back the adoption by years even, which could lead to you know incredible numbers of deaths that are really needless. So yeah, Sterling, maybe you could just double click into you know, how could we approach this for something like Tesla? Yeah, I mean, everything that you've said, everything that Jesse said as to kind of the, the, the risk there is, is real. Um, there, are, there are, again, uh, as I said earlier, it's important that we distinguish a couple of things here. Uh, so as, and, 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 and this is an important distinction to be made not only with the public, but with regulators. And that is, uh, I, I would take the position here that it is unlikely that any of you listening to this call will ever own a self-driving car. And that's okay, right? You'll ride in plenty. In fact, you might ride in them exclusively. But if you want to drive and if you love to drive, that probably doesn't need to be a self-driving car, right? That'll be, that'll be a car that you, that you own personally uh, that, that you don't use for commuting. You use for kind of uh, recreation. Uh, the reason for this is, is that for all the reasons that I've mentioned, A, uh, the incrementally higher cost of the hardware, simply kind of economically, it makes far more sense to put that on a car that can be utilized, you know, 70,000 miles a year, as opposed to a personally owned vehicle that drives 13,000. Uh, the, uh, uh, B, the, the limited operational domain, at least in the early years, uh, will, will render that car not nearly as useful to you as an individual uh, owner who has to go anywhere um, as it will to, you know, the business person who has to get from a, from, you know, one location to another. Uh, and it happens to be kind of within the operational domain of the vehicle. And so from a utility perspective, from an impact on society perspective, many of the, the second order benefits that were discussed earlier uh, in terms of kind of urban revitalization uh, you know, re- removal of, uh, of a lot of parking lots, things like that. Those all depend on ride hailing being ushered in by greater prevalence of and lower cost of self-driving vehicles. So that's, that's one. Uh, on the personal ownership side, um, the, the question then becomes uh, for, for someone who, who intends to own a vehicle that is self-driving, I, I would simply say that it's going to be many, many years before the problem is solved sufficiently, uh, even with the kind of hardware that most of that, that everyone on this call uh, is using today, um, to be capable of driving everywhere. Um, much less uh, a vehicle that's been designed with uh, severe cost constraints in mind that has that has far fewer sensors. Uh, and so, and so, it's it's going to be a very long time before a personally owned vehicle um, uh, achieves self-driving in a meaningful way. Uh, and by that time, it's unclear to me that it will make sense for anyone in society to want to own one. Jesse, I would love to hear your opinion on this one, as well as maybe starting to get into a little bit of an estimate of like when we could expect maybe those different stages of, you know, really expecting self-driving cars in known routes or very popular locations for that like business commute that Sterling was talking about. And then when we might actually get to being able to use them more recreationally to go wherever we want. Sure. I think it is a very important point that there is a tremendous difference between, you know, a car that can sort of 99.9% drive itself versus one that's really capable of driving itself more safely than a human. And I think it's an interesting side effect of human psychology that 
when we see something that works 99.9% of the time, in our mind, intuitively, it's so hard to avoid the temptation to think that it's almost 100%. It just feels like it's almost 100%. That's why, you know, you look at, you look at a, you know, Tesla full self-driving video, you know, when it happens to, to work. Or even, you know, even a Zooks or Cruise or Waymo video. And you're like, wow, like, it, you know, look at that. That was awesome. And, you know, look at how it handled those doubly parked vehicles and, you know, got through that tight spot. And it must be, you know, basically done. And the reality is that last 0.1% is, is where most of the work is. Now, companies that have a comprehensive sensor architecture and enough compute to process it have a very good chance of actually solving that 0.1%, you know, with lots of work and engineering and data and testing and so on. Companies that don't have that and are just relying on AI to sort of magically get, you know, several decades smarter in six months, that ain't going to happen. And so there's a reason why there are some fundamentally different approaches to solving this problem. In our case, we've said from the beginning that having an integrated platform that was designed from the ground up to be fully autonomous, where you can put the sensors exactly where you want them to give them maximum field of view, is the best way to make the AI problem as easy as possible to solve. And so we've tried to make the problem as easy as possible. It's still hard, but it's, it's a lot easier than it otherwise would be. And I think that's going to help us get to market sooner rather than later. Um, you know, a few of the panelists have already mentioned, even though you know, we're making the jump to full autonomy, the deployment of that technology will happen incrementally. We're not going to just wake up one morning and all of a sudden there's going to be 10,000 of these things driving around some city. And so what you'll see is that, you know, in the next few years, you'll be able to start experiencing these things on, on public roads. And maybe they won't do, you know, freeways and three-hour trips and driving in, you know, snow at nighttime uh, on day one. Um, but that, that'll all come, you know, in, in the coming years. And we just think it's so important from a safety perspective to make the leap to truly driverless and, and not try to have humans in the vehicle be even, a, even the tiniest bit responsible for the safety of the vehicle and its operation. So that's been our approach consistently since 2014. And I, I definitely think that that focus and consistency has helped us make as much progress as we have. And there is still more work to do, but you know, we're, we're definitely, at least from an existential perspective, uh, you know, much closer to launch than we than we are to the beginning. So does that mean we might see something similar to what Sterling was sort of imagining for uh, for fleets of cars, but for individuals, where when you get to your car, you might punch in your destination. It might take a you know a reading of what the climate situation is, what the route is going to be to get there, and it'll tell you yes, you can have this uh, as a self driving ride versus no, you're going to have to run this yourself. Is that kind of what you might imagine? I do think you'll see something like that, but it's but even that is a long, long way away, because no car that you can buy as a as a you know consumer has anywhere close to the level of technology from a sensing and computing perspective to even drive those simple routes truly autonomously without having to pay attention. And to say nothing of the more complicated scenarios, there's there's just a there's just a massive gap. There's there's many many nines missing. But yes, I do think someday that will happen. I don't know if I would go as far as Sterling to say you'll never own a car like that. Although I would say you probably will never have to own a car like that. Because by that point, you know, robo taxis will be so accessible and so great that most people won't find the need to own a car. But I wouldn't say that you'll never be able to own a self-driving car. I think you will eventually. I just think it's pretty, pretty far in the future. And I think they're going to have to come with a lot of the technology that's currently being built into robo taxis today. The problem is, again, you think about the business model. It's just far too expensive to own your own self-driving car that has all of that technology. It doesn't make economic sense, 
right? Whereas if you can build it into a robo-taxi and you can amortize that cost over people using it and paying for it all day and all night long, uh, that math works really, really well, even with today's pricing. Would you be able to just give us maybe an estimate even of when some of these milestones might happen in terms of a timeline? Because I know a lot of people, that's what they're wondering. It's like, should I buy another car now or should I wait five years? Or like, is it going to be 10 more years? So yeah, I'm definitely going to need to buy a car in the meantime. I I know a lot of people are thinking that. So maybe would you ordain to give us any estimate on some of those milestones? I think if you're in the market for a car right now and you actually want to go places, I don't know that you necessarily want to wait for robo taxis that are going to take you everywhere. Depends how patient you are, but I, you know, you're you're not going to find a robo taxi that does everything that your car can do today in the next few years. I don't think anybody, any company is going to have all of that in the next few years. I do think you'll be able to, depending on where you live, depending on what routes you're taking, I think you'll be able to find robo taxis to do some of what you do in a car today. Um, but that's partly why the transition from 2.1 cars per family to a much much smaller number that's going to happen over decades. It's not happening over you know, the next few years. But I can tell you that it's going to really start accelerating in a few years from now. And I think that, you know, a decade from now, you're going to see a profound shift in, in, that, in that number. We're happy to hear your question, Christian or Sterling, if you want to quickly jump in with what your, your estimate is for these. I was just going to add to that a moment, uh, which is that transition is already happening, right? Uh, it depends on your, where you live and your use case. But if you live in an urban setting, you drive fewer than 2,000 miles a year. Uh, once you factor in uh, parking, charging, maintenance, refueling uh, of your own personal vehicle, it already starts to make economic sense for you to instead use uh, ride-hailing vehicles, even human-driven. And so what we're talking about here is really a kind of demand induction via price reduction, right? Demand is highly elastic with price in the ride-hailing space. And what we're talking about with, with robo-taxis it's really simply a, a better experience at a lower price point that will induce the kind of demand that incrementally, starting in urban settings where it already makes sense today to eschew personal vehicle ownership, uh, will, will just expand outward. And so when I say something like you're, you are unlikely to ever own a self-driving vehicle, that's not me saying you can't ever own a self-driving vehicle. That's me saying you probably won't care to uh, because as the ubiquity of uh, ride-hailing services continues to expand the economic the economics of owning versus uh versus using will will just become so skewed uh, that it may not make sense i had this experience happen to me we sold our car you know a few years ago i was just realizing that i didn't want to park it everywhere it was annoying doing the maintenance it was just more expensive than it was worth than just taking ubers i was taking ubers most of the time anyways and still paying for a car so why why not just drop the car entirely and go to uber which is great until this whole pandemic thing showed up and then all of a sudden i didn't really want to be in cars with other people and so we ended up buying a car again yeah we bought a much older one rather than maybe buying a new one assuming that we might go back towards uber eventually but yeah it's certainly happening also have you guys heard any term for like people who stop owning a car like key droppers the way that we have like cord cutters for people who no longer have cable tv i think you just invented that we're going to use that going forward i think as an industry (laughs) The, the, the rise of the key droppers. Uh, all right, Kristen, we'd love to hear your question. Yeah, um, well, uh, it's inspired by Sterling and Jesse, but I'm going to ask Oliver the question because he has uh, a lot of experience in terms of testing and operating within a community of people. And so thinking about ownership of a self-driving vehicle, I wonder, Oliver, what you think about the potential of, in the future, subscribing to that. Um, so COVID, for example, kind of, 
all of a sudden people weren't really keen to share so much. So do you see this as a potential where someone might subscribe to um, one vehicle, maybe a couple of families share it or a community shares or subscribes to a number of self-driving vehicles that might operate within a geofenced area? I can totally see that. I mean, there's likely three models. One is owned, which, as we've discussed here, probably is more ADAS than self-driving. The other is, let's call it summoned, which is uh, the Uber equivalent. You have it a few days a week. And then perhaps the, the middle option is subscribe. And subscribe might be, you know, perhaps more expensive than, in, in fact, definitely will be more expensive than owning. Uh, but you'll be able to obviously uh, have closer access to this vehicle when you need it. And one thing I don't feel like we've perhaps talked about too much here is that when we think about societal benefits of this technology, there are a significant number of folks, and it's an increasing number of folks in the U.S. and around the world, uh, who have to give up access uh, to their vehicles. They have to give up their car keys. And when it comes to those with disabilities, those who cannot drive, they don't have the reflexes, uh, but they still want to live a life and be able to go around their communities and go do things, uh, a subscription model sounds great. Being able to quickly summon and have access to a vehicle uh, on a reliable basis for those folks that, again, perhaps severely vision impaired, uh, their reflexes aren't the same, all of those things uh, would, be, would be tremendous. So I hope that comes to fruition. If you guys want to submit a question, we'd love to hear. We're taking some questions in a moment from the constine.club chat. You can find the URL up in the title of the room. Uh, but one of the questions that I had was about the sort of impact on culture. You know, I think that there's so much that, you know, the, that about the American spirit of independence and the ability to create culture that stemmed from the fact that we were the first country where there was hand-me-down cars and you had teenagers really able to get out from under their parents' eye and go have a third space, not work, not home, a place that they could just hang out because you could just go somewhere and park the car. And that's not really going to be possible if you're only subscribing to access and, you know, the car has to drive away as soon as it gets you to your destination. And that to me makes me, it's like a little wistful that we wouldn't be able to have that experience. I knew so many of my formative experiences with friends as when I was growing up, weren't driving somewhere. We were just driving nowhere or we weren't even driving. We were just parked somewhere. And that, I, I worry that we might lose some of that. And you're already seeing a lot of really fascinating shifts in teen culture in terms of delaying or reduction in percentage of people getting uh, driver's licenses at all. You're also seeing, you know, later or in lower rates of sexual intercourse amongst teens. A lot of this may, may be caused by some of the depression and anxiety that I think is coming from our constant use of mobile phones and our feelings of isolation that come from there. But I do wonder if you know this shift away from car ownership might have a significant effect on this as well. So we'd love to hear if anybody has any sort of physical philosophical takes on how this will affect culture, especially for teens uh, and people who don't have their own third space otherwise, that they don't own their own home, they don't have a place to sort of do whatever they want. And cars have often provided that and they might not anymore. Well, I, I certainly agree that um, we are going to be single-handedly responsible for nobody ever having sex again. So that is a uh, very astute insight. No, um, <laughs> Jesse, I was going to ask how comfortable the backseat of that uh, Zooksmobile is. <laughs> uh, no, I've, I've heard a lot of things. I've never heard that. I've never heard that connection before. I mean, I've, well, I've heard the joke about, you know, what you can do in a self-driving car. I've never heard it being responsible for people not having sex anymore. So all jokes aside, I don't know about it. From the, from the cultural perspective, I would argue that actually, you know, teenagers having too much freedom to drive a car that they're not maybe ready to drive or they might be drinking and driving, that's not such a great idea. Now, the, the, the freedom to move around is fantastic. 
But I don't think that you're going to have to have a subscription to take advantage of that mobility. You don't need to. You don't need to subscribe to use Uber and Lyft. Now, who knows? Maybe someday they'll have a subscription where you get discounted rides or something. But I, I would be surprised if to use a robo taxi, you have to be a subscriber and you know have some monthly fee, and you can't just go use it on a one-off basis. So I would actually think that for teenagers, it's an opportunity to safely go places. And actually spend time with people in real life, because I do agree that, you know, spending time in real life with people is, is very important. And, you know, just being glued to your phone all day, uh, like we're all doing right now, is not the best thing if you do it too much. Um, but I think that I think that robotaxis can actually help that and they shouldn't be an impediment to it. It'll just make people uh, a lot safer and it should make parents more comfortable with their with their teenagers going out and having fun. Anyone else want to weigh in on, <laughs> on self-driving cars influence on teen pregnancy? Staying away from that one. That's a no from me, Jeff. <laughs> all your cor- all your corporate PR people just like clenched as soon as I asked that. Um, I, I'm looking at them all in the audience, just terrified. I will say, Josh, uh, 14 years ago, I was giving a talk at MIT on some of the work that I was doing in self-driving. And Marty Culpepper, I think it was at the time, asked me afterwards, he's like, look, uh, what about those of us who just want to smell rubber, gasoline, and uh, you know, wind in our hair? Right. What, what does it do effectively the culture of Americana uh, as it relates to kind of the romanticized notions of automobile ownership? The short answer is, when was the last time that was your experience in a car? Right. That's a very, very small fraction of your time. Uh, but not only that, my expectation is that doesn't go away. What we're not trying to solve is the kind of winding country road racetracks. Right. We're not uh, in, in the same way that um, kind of those whose horse nostalgia uh, kind of caused them to question the introduction of the automobile. If you enjoy horses, you still enjoy horses. You enjoy them specifically where they can be enjoyed, which is off riding at the ranch. Um, if you enjoy cars, you'll continue to enjoy them in places where they're enjoyable. But I think in terms of the influence on, on culture and, and one's kind of lived experience, it's not obvious to me at all that this will be a net detriment. In fact, it, it may kind of give the time back to allow enjoyment of some of those things in, in specific settings uh, in which they're actually enjoyable. Yeah, I can imagine it's like, get rid of all that time you spend commuting and instead maybe occasionally rent a really fun car to drive and drive it somewhere fun. Like go to Vegas, rent a Ferrari, drive around the Hoover Dam. Like that's a great experience, but not the typical experience of what car ownership or car driving really is for most people. Right. I would love to hear uh, about What's left? Like, what's missing in terms of the technology? What is the what are the biggest roadblocks that we're still facing? And maybe we could start with Raquel, because I know that as the former chief scientist at Uber ATG, you are facing these technical problems head on. So maybe you can tell us, like, what what still needs to happen? What are the major roadblocks that are delaying this eventual rollout? Yeah, yeah. So to me, there is um, like two major technological uh, potential issues. One is uh, you know, building the autonomous system of the car such that um, you can, uh, you know, really solve all the long tails. And, you know, I will maybe um, disagree with Jesse into, uh, you know, whether the role of AI is a minor role versus a bigger role or whether we need a new generation of uh, algorithms in order to solve this. And the second one is, um, do we have, you know, all the different, you know, the sophistication of uh, simulations such that we can both test and train these, uh, you know, these systems to a way that, you know, it's reliable enough so that we can really, um, you know, certify 
um, you know, uh, the safety of a driving car. So I think there is still a lot to be done in these two domains. And uh, self-driving for me is not just an engineering problem. There is still a lot of innovation that needs to happen. Um, and, you know, I think, uh, you know, you need robust engineering together with science uh, in order to really get us to uh, also have, you know, the progress, the slope of progress that we need in order to really deploy this technology as soon as possible. Jesse, what do you think? What are, what are the remaining technological challenges that we really need to tackle here? I certainly agree that there's what most people would call science left to do. Like we're still innovating on, you know, algorithms and the kind of stuff that, you know, people would publish papers at conferences. We're, we're absolutely doing a lot of that at Zooks and it's critically important to do that. What I, what I meant though, to be a little bit more nuanced about it is I don't think that we have to invent entire categories of AI the way that, you know, for example, if you look at, you know, how deep learning has revolutionized so much of the way we do, you know, computer vision and natural language. I don't know that we have to invent entire new categories of machine learning algorithms on that level versus take a lot of the building blocks that exist and, you know, improve on them in, in some genuinely creative and novel ways. Um, my point was that if you wanted to, for example, get a fully self-driving car with cameras only as the sensor, I think that would require multiple categories of invention, each on the order of deep learning itself. Whereas I think to get, you know, full self-driving with cameras, radar, LIDAR, and a lot of compute, there's still a lot of work to do. And you can, you can sort of debate the semantics of what you call engineering, what you call science. I just, I think that's a lot more tractable than trying to invent, you know, several new uh, generations of AI. Like, um, you know, simulation is a is a fundamentally important aspect of this because you can't you can't just you know experience every possible thing that could ever ever go wrong. Uh, by definition, you know you have to be able to handle things that you haven't seen before, um, and I think simulation is a profoundly powerful tool to do that. You know, which is why we and and you know the other I think you know credible companies in this space are really heavily investing in simulation. And probably I don't think any company has fully publicly talked about all the work they're doing in simulation. But that's certainly going to be a key key part of really, really validating the algorithms can handle whatever the world can throw at them. So another quick question, which is around, you know, what what happens with the sort of safety, privacy, uh, privacy and cybersecurity? Those are just two quick questions. Would love here to hear some quick responses on, you know, should the public really be worried about the cybersecurity of these cars and the potential for somebody to hack your car and drive you into a wall? And, and, and also, what do you think about the privacy of this data about what goes on in your car? You know, what where it goes should, you know, is that something that only the passenger should own? Should the networks own? Should they be able to opt in or out? Um, you know, what, what should be the regulation around who controls that data? Happy to have any of you jump in, Sterling, Oliver. From a cybersecurity perspective, I mean, these things are computers on wheels, right? So every company that's developing this needs to invest significantly and is investing significantly into cybersecurity because of those risks. And uh, Plug for Cruise uh, has an exceptional security team that uh, works on these problems. Secondly, on, on the privacy front, this is important. It hasn't been figured out yet, right? I mean, let's look at Facebook over the last 10 years and how that's evolved. But what is going to be important is that people feel that the data that they are a part of, meaning they're a part of the trip, the vehicle is collecting data, helps improve the system. And the system should have already met, as we discussed many times here, the necessary safety bar. But if people really feel that they're contributing towards a system that can expand and help more people and be in more places faster, et cetera, et cetera, 
I, I think they'll be more than comfortable. And the truth is, these vehicles are not a threat, if you ask me, to privacy in any uh, any way. So it will be something that evolves. But uh, as, as far as today, I feel that uh, the companies uh, need to keep this data in a similar way to aircraft companies uh, needing to keep that data for uh, for internal purposes. I've got another question well, before we get into some final points. I would like each of you, maybe starting with, uh, with Jesse, to just talk about why is your approach the right approach and everyone else's approach wrong? Well, that's uh, perhaps a little overly controversial. No, of course. But, but I know. First of all, I, I think it's actually really good that there are multiple approaches being developed in parallel. And I think that's true for, for several reasons. First of all, this is not a winner-take-all market. It's way too big of a market. And there's so many different facets and pieces of it, only some of which you even touched on tonight. So the world needs multiple companies pursuing this and lots of smart and creative ideas. You know, no, no one company is going to have a monopoly on all the good answers to these problems. So I'm very happy, as I think we all are, that there's fellow travelers, friendly competition, all of that. That said, I do think the approach makes a big difference and not all approaches are going to be successful. Our view, and we are unique in the industry as far as I can tell, because we've, we've been consistent about our approach since we started the company in 2014. And I touched on this earlier, but our view has always been that to solve this problem properly, you do need an integrated platform. And you know, some people accuse us of, oh, you know, you're so arrogant. You think you can figure out how to build a car and build self-driving. Like, what's wrong with you people? Or you know, we used to get, well, why the hell would you bother building a car when cars already exist? Just slap some sensors on the roof, put a computer in the trunk, and now you have a self-driving car. You know, we talked to plenty of, of smart people over the years who thought we were somewhat to completely nuts for trying to solve the whole problem. And some of our competitors even like to talk about how we're trying to solve three home runs. And like, what are the chances that Zeke's new home can solve three home runs? <coughs> or, <coughs> no, sorry, just getting through. But that, is, that has been like Aurora's favorite thing about, you know, don't go work for Zeke's because they're trying to solve three home runs. And it's like, we, we don't look at it that way. We, we think we're trying to, to just, just one home run. This is one product at the end of the day. And again, it's okay if people have different opinions, different views on this. But in our view, creating a, a robo-taxi that has the, the vehicle platform, the, the compute and sensors, and the software and AI to actually create a product that people want to use and that you can certify up and down the stack that it's actually safe from the hardware, the firmware, the software, the algorithms, the data, the network, teleoperation, having the sensors in the right place so you can see the whole world from multiple angles and see around things, having enough battery to drive all day and all night long, having dual steering racks so you can get enough accuracy on your steering and redundancy on braking and all these things. I mean, we, we actually think this is the best way to solve the problem. And we think it actually makes the problem easier to solve at the end of the day, even though it sounds like it's more work. So, so that's been our approach consistently every day since 2014. We really like that approach. It is hard. It is expensive. Um, but we have the people and the resources and the time to do that. So we're really excited by that approach. But again, I think it's wonderful that there are other great companies in this industry, including people on this call. And there's definitely room for multiple companies to be successful. I appreciate you being direct on this one. Sterling, what's your, your take? When I was in high school, we had uh, the high school across the river that were kind of our arch enemies, right? We, we perceived them as kind of the, the people to beat. Uh, every sport that I played, every competition that we had was incredibly charged until we got to state, at which point suddenly we were somehow friends. 
because the, at the state level, we were kind of representatives of the same county. And then we got to nationals and everyone in the state who we had previously perceived to be our competitors somehow looked a lot more like our friends. I think the wider your aperture on the self-driving space, or frankly, any industry, the more you realize that those who you might otherwise perceive as your competition are really part of the same cabal who are solving the same problem. All of us, Voyage, Uber ATG, uh, before we purchased them, Jesse's crew, Kyle's, are in this to make our roadways more safe, to improve the efficiency uh, of transportation, and improve our world. And that's really what Aurora is about. Now, we talked earlier for a moment about the incredibly complex magnitude of, of this problem. It is not just about solving software problems. It's about solving hardware problems. And it's not just about solving sensor or compute problems. It's about solving vehicle problems. The, the interface of the vehicle, the actuator redundancies on that vehicle all need to be adapted uh, specifically to the needs of a self-driving system and its functional safety uh, case. For that reason, we knew that as Aurora alone, we couldn't nearly as well solve the general problem, including the vehicle development, including the network development, as we could in partnership with others. And so our, our position has always been that of we are better together. And so through partnership, we can partition this into an OEM who has 100 years of experience designing and building cars. We can partner with them in creating the requirements at the interfaces of the self-driving system and the vehicle such that they can apply their tremendous resources, their tremendous teams, their experience and their background to build that vehicle with the kind of interfaces, with the kind of sensor perspectives, with the kinds of, uh, of power uh, and other actuation that's required for us to operate that safely. Same thing with the network. See what's happened around the world. Uh, and you'll see uh, tremendous, tremendous competitions between titans of this industry, the DD Uber uh, or, you know, Kareem and Grab and others. And it's no accident that there is effectively one and a half ride hailing networks in any given continental region, right? Whether it's uh, DD in Asia, uh, Kareem in, in, in uh, the Middle East, uh, Grab in Southeast Asia. Uh, and the reason for this is that's an incredibly complex thing to do. We realize that. We realize cars are an incredibly complex thing to do. And so as Aurora, when we founded the company, we recognized there's one thing that we're best in the world at, and that's self-driving system development. So we focused specifically on that. We partnered with a number of partners across the space who can bring to bear their respective expertise. And we took the position that we would, that we would uh, develop this system together. The one other thing that I'll say as it relates to kind of consistency of, of developmental approach when we started the company, uh, Drew, Chris, and I put our heads together on the path to market that we would take as Aurora. At the time of the three markets, uh, trucking, ride-hailing, and delivery, it was obvious that trucking was the most opportune. The problem was we didn't have the technology to solve it at that time. In fact, nobody in the industry did. The kind of long-range multimodal sensing that sees well beyond 300 meters simply didn't exist. So we couldn't credibly say that we had a Snowball's chance in hell, as they say, of solving that problem until we'd fix, uh, of solving the trucking, self-driving trucking problem until we'd found a way to unlock that. So for the subsequent few years, most of what you saw from us, most of what you heard from us, focused on the development of passenger vehicles in low-speed operational domains. The reason for that was twofold. First, that was the only thing that technically we had a chance at the time of actually solving. 
And second, the rate at which we encountered interesting cases from which we learned is much, much higher in urban settings than it is on highways. And so it was far more efficient for us developmentally to be doing that. It wasn't until about two years ago when we acquired Blackmore, uh, acquired a, a frequency modulated continuous wave LIDAR pioneer and developed with them what we uh, have now named the first light LIDAR, that we became suddenly capable of seeing well beyond 300 meters with multiple modes of sensors. And at that point, suddenly this trucking market, which is hugely opportune, uh, became available to us. And so at that point, we started to be much more vocal about uh, establishing a trucking product as our first product. That's not to say it's our only. It's to say that the sequencing of our products in their path to market makes a ton of sense when you can start in a market like trucking where the the operational domain is so self-similar that you can scale up far more rapidly than you've seen from any of the companies in, in ride hailing, right? You look at what's been happening in Phoenix, and that's been languishing there for a couple of years now, right? It's on the order of a dozen vehicles, and every incremental block that gets unlocked takes an excruciating amount of effort to validate. If you're operating a truck, a lane, a, a segment that you operate in Texas looks an awful lot like the lane that you would operate in nearly any other state. And so it's able to scale much more rapidly. It's, it's unit economics are able to absorb the incrementally higher initial cost of the bill of materials. And by virtue of those two things, you can increase the scale, improve your experience, reduce your costs, and launch into ride hailing from a position of, position of strength. And so that's Aurora's position uh, on, on both those things. First, this is a huge ocean to boil. Uh, I consider everyone on this call and those working on this problem as friends uh, because I, I think we're all solving the same problem for the world. Thanks for that. I really appreciate that uh, deep dive. Oliver, what's your perspective from Voyage and Cruise? Yes. So I'm an Apple fanboy. And what that means is I want to build the iPhone of transportation, right? Something that's just so meaningfully better than what came before it that uh, it's just transformational. And when I think about one of the challenges, the major challenge we had at Voyage uh, it was regarding working with automakers. We had partners and they were great, but we could just never go that lead deep enough to uh, deliver that iPhone of transportation. And uh, shameless plug, and I don't know, people <laughs> might leave uh, with the shameless plugs, but Cruise is, as far as I'm aware, the only company that has that, uh, that deep, deep, deep automaker relationship that can result in something uh, as as uh, as meaningful as the cruise origin, and then you pair that with the way that cruise has developed its technology. Started in San Francisco, it hasn't uh, wavered from that. The reason they started there is because it will absolutely mean scale faster to many many cities around the country and around the world. So that's uh, as far as I can see it, the advantage that uh, that cruise has. And uh, yeah, I'll pause there. Okay, now I want Raquel. You're formerly at Uber and. Would love to hear what your perspective is on which of these models is going to win now. Let me give you my two cents, which is actually a different model, potentially, which could, uh, could win. And so on one side, I agree with Sterling in the importance of partnerships, meaning that you don't need to, you know, and maybe disagree with you, see that you don't need to build all the components in order to succeed, but you need, uh, you know, deep enough partnerships so that you can ensure that what is built is what uh, what you need and so we need to make the, the safety case. Now, I will go one step deeper and say that, you know, it's not just about the network, it's not just about the OEM. There is many more things now that have become or are becoming more and more commoditized. 
including you know some of the hardware or the sensors right uh, if you ask me four years ago i would say you absolutely need to develop your own radar you know to succeed uh, now these days there is you know quite a few companies that are actually in a great uh, track towards you know getting some some fantastic sensors the same if you you know uh, for you know compute and ai right there is so many you know chip companies that are you know building some really interesting technology so I think you know one can go you know further on that direction and then focus maybe on one aspect or a couple of aspects uh, of self driving. Now, the other thing that has been told before is that um, you need, in order to succeed in this industry, you need gigantic capital. And to me, you know, I want to maybe leave with the question of: Is that really true? Or is this true with the current approaches into trying to solve self driving? Right. And to me, if we can actually build technology that is built to scale from the one and potentially doesn't require that much capital, I think potentially we have you know, a different avenue here. Kirsten, what do you think is the model that's going to work best here? Is it one where it's very deeply integrated with an existing automaker, one where everything is sort of a partnership, you do just the self-driving and then you outsource the network and the vehicle, or is it one where you try to build everything in-house? <laughs> so you're, you're making me pick. Yep. And I have to cover these companies later. Well, I will say that it's definitely been a game of survivor that was happening for a few years where everyone was forming alliances and partnerships, but not all partnerships are the same. And um, I think a big mistake that happened in the past, and you know, I don't, I, I don't think anyone realized they were doing that at the time because they're scaling their companies and they're excited about things, but you know, partnerships happen all the time in the automaker automotive world and automakers can be very fickle. They test out partnerships with people all the time and they switch things up all the time. And I think a lot of AV startups were, would get very excited about these partnerships and just not realize what they're necessarily getting into. And so there's been some shuffling happening and I don't really know how it's going to that part is going to play out. It seems like that's settled down now. Um, I'm actually really intrigued with what Zooks is doing in a lot of ways because they're able to control everything um, on their own. But I do acknowledge that it's going to be tough. Um, I don't know if I could pick one, but I will say that like the whole partnership issue with, uh, I think a, a partnership with a tier one supplier is just as important as a, a partnership with an automaker. And um, that isn't discussed as much because tier one suppliers, it's like, oh, that's kind of boring. Um, but that that matters as well. And so whatever company out there can unlock that perfect partnership with a tier one supplier and have their in-house tech happening, I think will be great. Another thing that it hasn't been mentioned is who's going to be managing the fleet? What who's going to be the network provider? You know, right now it's Uber and Lyft are going for that, right? But is someone else going to come along and do that? So there, I think there's more to that puzzle than just those three options, unfortunately. Okay, I appreciate that. I'll give my perspective. I, I'm pretty bullish on the like fully vertically integrated model. I think 
given all of the problems of, you know, the, how tightly software and hardware need to be integrated together along with the network, how, you know, to be able to truly say that these are safe, you're going to need to have a lot of that control and you can't really have anybody who doesn't feel fully invested in the situation where they don't, like, they're not the one who's going to take the reputational hit if something goes wrong. That makes me pretty bullish on the, the Zooks, like, fully integrated model. Uh, but I want to give a few of the insights from the, the rest of the panel uh, and give you guys a little bit of a recap. Uh, and if you guys want the podcast from this show, please go to constein.club. You can find it in the title of the room and you can download the podcast for this. It'll be coming out soon. Plus get the podcast from our recent shows, which include the CEOs of Facebook, uh, Shopify, Spotify, Patreon, WordPress, Slack, uh, Substack, and a bunch of other incredible companies uh, to give you some insights on the creator economy, whether we're going to be going back to work right away, the future of newsletters and podcasts. Uh, would love to have you as one of our press clubbers. And I also want to thank uh, Alice, Jordan, Nick Boucher, uh, uh, Jonathan Fight, and everybody else on the Constein.club chat who's been supplying us with some of the amazing questions that we've been asking today. So let's jump into what the big recap of what's going on here. The opportunity for self-driving cars is that we can spend more time with each other, that you get your time back. And ideally, we're going to get our space back too, more sidewalks, more parks, roads slimming down, fewer parking lots. Uh, and I think that this is going to be a great opportunity uh, for us to think about cheap, not just self-driving cars, but you know, trucking logistics for cheaper deliveries, uh, whether that's you know from a, a food source, uh, like a food delivery app, or you know, long-haul trucking, that all of this stuff is going to become safer and cheaper. And you know, as Kyle talked about uh, from Cruz, he's talking about that we're building teleportation, the ability to maybe go to sleep in one place, wake up in another, and that while there's plenty of efforts around human life extension, just giving people back the time that they already have, that's a huge opportunity to give us more of our life. And, you know, that a lot of us are sort of complacent with the fact that cars are the number one cause of death for teenagers today. And self-driving cars could really almost be a vaccine for that. And, you know, it's really on these companies, the companies on stage to really set the role uh, and to set the role model for how this should happen and doing it responsively. That like, if you, if we roll these out before they're really ready, we could have these tragedies that lead to regulations that might push this back by years and actually cost, cost many more lives than the few we might lose to some self-driving accidents. Uh, and that's why you know, when we talked about Tesla, there was some of you that really thought that Tesla needs to either speak up and tell users, hey, this is not something that's fully autonomous yet. You cannot be playing around in the backseat or looking at your phone. You need to be able to take the wheel at a moment's notice or that we need regulation to say that this should be rewound and that it's not necessarily something that should even be allowed because there's no true level three autonomy where the human and the AI need to be working together. It really needs to be something where it's one or the other because that trade-off is just too dangerous. And then when it came to the, the model that we're going to see these roll out in, you know, we talked about safety systems being too expensive for personal ownership to like have the best in class, safest possible car. It's probably going to be too expensive for any one person to own. And so the real opportunity here is thinking about how do we make these you know, into subscription access, whether that's you know a few families splitting one or with traditional ride hailing networks that are just driven by self, uh, self-driving cars, that this is how we're going to make the best in class vehicles more affordable. And maybe you won't actually ever need to own a car again. You might be able to, you might be able to buy a self-driving car if you really want to. You probably won't have to. And when it comes to non-self-driving cars, that'll be a recreational sort of 
luxury that when you want to go and you know put that that rubber to the road, smell the smell the the smell of the tires, and when you want to get that wind in your hair and get out on the open road, like you might actually rent a real traditional car uh, to do that because we just most of our driving experiences are nothing like that. And there are opportunities though for us to sort of elegantly feather in self-driving cars. You can imagine that uh, a future ride-hailing service with self-driving cars would say, "What is your destination? What are the road conditions today? If it's safe, you know, safe and clear out, and we know this track or this route, oh, and we've done it over and over again, and we can be sure it's going to be safe, we could sell in a self-driving car. But if it's going to be somewhere where haven't had as much experience, or there's some weather conditions, then we might send a, a human-driven car, and that can help us sort of smooth over uh, that shift. And you know, it, the real problem though is that the last 0.1 percent might be the hardest part." They might take longer than the first 90%, than the last 9%, the last 1%, because it's really that getting to the point that we can be fully confident that these cars can take care of us that's going to be necessary because anything in between is probably dangerous. Um, and so from now, we're going to be, we're going to see that start accelerating. It's already accelerating right now. A decade from now, it's going to be much more common. And it's really going to come with the demand induction with price in a reduction. You know, as it becomes cheaper to do this, to have a self-driving car pick you up than to own one, you're going to see a lot of people, as we were saying, being key droppers, the, you know, the, the, the equivalent of cord cutters for cable TV but for cars where people say, I just don't need to own a car at all anymore. Um, I am a little bit sad about the idea that we might have less of a third space where you know kids have a car that's maybe handed down from their parents where they can use to get away and just hang out, not necessarily be going somewhere, but just spend time together. That said, parents might just feel a lot safer about their kids being out of the house and out, out from under their watchful eye if cars, one of the most dangerous things to teenagers, actually drive themselves and become much safer. And you know there are still people who enjoy horses, right? and they just enjoy them where they're enjoyable. They don't ride them in the streets. They go on ranches, they go off trail where it might actually be fun. Uh, and you know, when people asked if is there anything that can derail this industry? We asked the Constantine.club chat and the poll results were you know, that most people really believed that this was going to be unstoppable. That you know, the, the number one response was that tragic deaths could be something that derailed it. That was, it was actually right on the, the money. It was tied between tragic deaths as being something that could derail self-driving cars and no, that autonomy is unstoppable. Nobody thought that lack of funding would be the issue and fewer people thought regulations or problem scaling the business model were really going to be the challenge. And so now when we're thinking about well, how do we get to the last part of this? How do we roll this out? It's about the combination of the three expertises. One is the logistics, the ride hailing, like how cars get to you. There's the second, which is the self driving technology that makes sure that it's safe. And then the third is the vehicle that this is all hosted in. And the question is sort of whether we're going to have a company that does it all together, you know, like Zooks, which is trying to solve all the problems at once, you know, that this is one product at the end of the day, and that it's easier to have them all fully integrated so you can declare them safe. And that, it, but no matter what your perspective is, you know, uh, they're, they're, we're all working on the same problem. You know, uh, Aurora's perspective is instead that, you know, that we're better through partnership, that they can find an 100 year vehicle maker that makes the best cars and that you can find a ride hailing network that already has massive scale and that they can just do what they do best, which is self-driving systems. And then you have Cruise and Voyage and they're trying to really build the iPhone of the self-driving experience, uh, but with a deep partnership with an automaker, specifically GM, which acquired Cruise, and that they think that's going to be the best approach. And, you know, but I think the, the biggest thing is that no matter what 
no matter what you think about self-driving cars in terms of the safety, how it's going to come to market, when you zoom out, all these companies are on the same team. They're on team save lives because human-driven cars are dangerous. And so there's a huge opportunity for us to be working on this problem. And maybe it's the most exciting problem of all that somebody could be working on right now. And so with that, I want to thank everybody for giving their incredible insights this week. I really appreciate it. Uh, one final question, though, and I want this to be a real lightning round around the room. Do you think that at some point self-driving cars will be mandated, that at least for certain types of rides or maybe in certain conditions, maybe in places like cities, that there will be a mandate to drive self, use self-driving cars and that manually driven cars will no longer be allowed? Uh, maybe we can start with you, Jesse. Sure. Well, thanks for having us. Uh, it was super fun. Great conversation. Thanks to all the panelists as well. Um, ever? Yes. But I don't think it's happening anytime soon. Uh, I think there's a lot of legacy with, you know, cars and culture and, uh, you know, there's, there's some issues with, with banning cars again, you know, in some number of decades, uh, I'm sure that'll start happening in some areas. Uh, you know, at, at some point you could argue it might be irresponsible to have humans driving cars. Uh, on the other hand, you know, we'll, we'll see, maybe they have so many safety features. It is not irresponsible anymore, but absolutely it's going to get, you know, more and more rare for people to drive cars. And I think that in the quite distant future, you'll start to see some of it be, uh, you know, outlawed in certain areas. And in the very, very, very distant future, I think it's going to seem ridiculous to imagine people driving cars, but that could be, I don't know, 30, 50 or hundred years away. What do you think, Oliver? I don't see mandates happening anytime soon. I think ultimately the supply of vehicles that are currently out there will one day just not have human abilities to control it. You won't have steering wheels, you won't have pedals. Uh, and, uh, you know, slowly but surely, you won't need to drive because the vehicles themselves will not have the capability for a human to do so. I, I don't really see a mandate uh, yet, but like Jesse said, maybe in some long period into the future, I think it's likely that the vehicles themselves just don't let humans drive them. Raquel, what do you think? Imagine uh, mandates in, a, for example, in a country like the U.S., right, where, it, where it's all about your freedom and your ability to do the things as you were doing them, you know, many years ago. Um, so I don't think that's going to happen now. I think maybe what we see is certain roads where only driving cars can drive. Great, thank you, Kirsten. What do you think? Are we going to see mandates uh, and bans on uh, on manually driven cars? I think that it'll happen in some very specific communities, but I think that what will more likely happen is that the roads can only fit so many vehicles. And we're already seeing restrictions on the the fuel type. So, you know, moving from restrictions on gas-powered vehicles within urban centers. And so I see like a very specific geofenced areas putting limitations on that first. Um, and then maybe potentially moving to autonomous vehicles. But at some point we will run out of how many vehicles we can put on the road. And so that will force some sort of sea change of some kind. I don't think that government mandates, though, are going to happen in the United States, certainly not in the next few decades. And finally, Sterling, what do you think? Mandates, bans? Mandates in this industry tend to lag rather than lead societal change. So my expectation is that mandates won't happen before society in a given uh, market has, has simply largely adopted whatever ends up being the case, right? So downtown London, for instance, or, you know, you look at, look at EVs or incremental kind of active safety features on personally owned vehicles. In every case, the industry will uh, adopts first, the customer picks up, and it tends to be 15 or so years later, on average over the last century, that, that a mandate comes down. And by that time, it's not really impactful on 
just about anybody because most of the industry is just adopted anyway. So I, I don't think that it's the conversation of, of mandate timing is is meaningfully going to affect anything for anyone here. I think I think once the market accepts and adopts, uh, you know, for all intents and purposes, that a mandate won't change that. Well, regardless of how it happens, when it happens, and who makes it happen, what we're sure to have is a safer world and one where we have more of our time back. And with that, I want to thank you all for attending this week's Press Club. It means the world to me to have you here. Thank you to all the Press Clubbers who show up every week. Love you guys. And we will be back next week with an incredible show about personal development, self-improvement with Gary Vee and some other leaders from personal finance. And if you want the recording from this show or some of our past shows with incredible CEOs across the industry, go to Constein.club and hit up our podcast. We'd love to have you there. Or subscribe to our incredible newsletter where we bring insights and sort of top takeaways from our shows and give you them in text form just in case you're tired of listening to us talk. And if you check out that Constantine.club site or you use the chat today and you think that's cool, uh, you can get that from Spore.gg. They're the website maker that makes this incredible type of creator website that I know is becoming super popular amongst a bunch of clubhousers. But Thank you again one more time for joining us this today on Press Club. Thank you to all our incredible guests, Kyle from Cruise, Oliver from Voyage, Sterling from Aurora, Kirsten from TechCrunch, Raquel formerly from Uber, and Jesse from Zooks. It's been lovely, and I'm so thankful to have you guys give us this vision of the future, this glimpse of what's to come, and give us that inspiration of why this is something that's so powerfully important to the safety of our lives, as well as just the ability to spend them the way we want. So thank you again. I'm Josh Constein from Signal Fire. If you guys are pitching something or building something really interesting, uh, whether it's in the self-driving car space or anything else, we'd love to hear about it. We're a seed to series B company with a billion dollars under management, investing actively in startups. And we'd love to hear what you're doing. Our superpower is in recruiting. We help make a thousand candidate intros to our portfolio companies in a single year uh, through our recruiting technology beacon. We'd love to provide that to your startup if you're a right fit. So please reach out via DMs or email. You can find me uh, through a warm intro or however else. We'd love to hear about what you're building. But one more time, thank you again for joining us this week on Press Club. We'll be back next week, 6 p.m. Pacific Thursdays. It has been a complete pleasure, and it is an honor to have your ears for this time. Thank you again to all of our speakers, and we'll see you again on Press Club. I'm Josh Constein. Farewell. Farewell.